Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. We're now in our series called Journey of the Redeemed. It's a study in the book of Luke, and as we explore the life of Jesus, we also examine our own journeys shaped by him. If you're new to Cincinnati, or if you don't know, it's a very cool time. Right down the street from our church in Eden Park is Crone Conservatory. I get very excited because they have animals right now. Farm animals have come to the city. And when I take a walk, if you want to throw up picture number one, we've got sheep. We've got sheep in the city. Now, I have to tell you that these sheep were taken a couple years ago, these photos. I have currently met the new sheep this year, and they're a little less picturesque. These were very cute. They're a little bit more raggedy. For some reason, they spray-painted the tops of them. I don't know. I feel sorry for them. But if you can see behind them, there's a wooden structure, and inside there is a life-size nativity. Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus are not real people. They are some figurines. But there is a cow in there. A donkey inside there. It's very pretty at night. They have lights all around, crone, all around this display. Um, They do charge for you to go inside and see the floral display and train in there. But the outside, free, open till 9 p.m. Check it out. Now, I do, if you've ever been to my house around Christmas, I do like myself a good nativity. I'm very, very joyful over nativities that come from other countries. So Steve had the chance to go visit our missionary friends, Johnny and Zandra Dye from Venezuela, a number of years back. And he brought me back this nativity. I was very fascinated with how it's carved in the very simplistic faces. The next one I have is my parents. They went to Puerto Rico and they brought back this one. And I don't know if you can tell, but each of the little people are made out of nails. And Mary's sitting in a walnut shell. Very cute. Um, I purchased another set from missionaries from Kenya at a conference I went to. And these are all made of corn husks. And you'll note that while there's like the magi over here, over here, these little guys beside the shepherd, there's also people playing instruments. And it's very interesting to see the different kind of instruments that they're praising baby Jesus with. And then finally, when we were in Bethlehem in 2005, we got not one but two Uh, nativities because I just really thought they were beautiful. They were made there by, it's made out of olive wood. This is one I got for my grandparents. We bought them for each of our family members to bring back. And so when my grandparents passed away, this came back to me. So I have some despair, but I really liked this because it just felt like it was made there, right? Where Jesus was born. Now I recognize, I like to look at the different ones and see interpretations. That's why I like to look at nativities from other countries because the thing, the materials they make or like the instrumentalist, or I've seen some with a variety of animals, they, they bring them in from their culture and what animals they would see and imagine at the nativity. And we know that they're all different traditions, right? It's just an interpretation, but there's something comforting that we can find even if not everything is probably historically accurate. That's okay. There's some comfort to be found in the nativities we have. However, today we are going to just, we're going to take a dive. We're going to look 
We're going to dig into some realism of the time and what it would have been like when Jesus was born. We are, you know, breaking tradition because we're echo. That's what we do. We're probably reading Jesus's birth story maybe a few days earlier than some other churches, but I figured you'd be fine. We're not you know, stuck to December 25th anyway, right? Not sure that Jesus was born then, but we are in our segment two of Journey of the Redeemed. We are looking back. We're taking a break from Jesus' ministry that we've been talking about in the book of Luke since September. We're going to pause on that as Jesus as an adult. We're flashing back to his birth, and we're going to look into his childhood. So thanks for spending time with us today. And we have, ooh, I didn't grab a microphone. Did you grab the microphone? Hey, can we have a microphone? We have a reader today for our scripture, and I was not prepared. Um, Thank you. Dorota's going to read for us today in Luke chapter 2, and we're using the New Testament for everyone version, because there's some particular words that I want us to hear, but it will be on the screen as well. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, please. At that time, a decree was issued by Augustus Caesar. A census was to be taken of the whole world. This was the first census before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So everyone set off to be registered, each to their own town. Joseph, too, who belonged to the house and family of David, went from the city of Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea, David's city to be registered with his fiancée, Mary, who was pregnant. Now, I am a person who likes to take a break from some of the stressful news sometimes, especially at the holidays. Like, I don't really want to get into politics. But hey, these words here in Luke have some political implications. So we're going to need to take a look. As we look at the reality of the Christmas story, Luke's reason for sharing why he describes this setting under this Roman Empire, there are reasons. So we hear Caesar Augustus' name right there. Let's do a quick recap of Roman history. Julius Caesar was the great uncle of Augustus. His, he was also known as Octavian. Julius became his adoptive father. When Julius died, in his will, he left everything to Augustus. the the title Caesar, his estate, and people who were loyal to Julius Caesar were now being loyal to Augustus. Well, first, Rome was still a republic at that time, and so Augustus shared some power with others. But power, power was enticing. And so he ends up defeating all others and establishes himself as the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Eventually, Augustus claimed that his dead adoptive father, Julius, was divine. Therefore, Augustus was the son of a god. He claimed he was savior, lord of Rome. He said he brought peace very violently, but he claimed himself to be the one, the lord of Rome. So therefore, in light of this, let's look at Luke's words again. He's describing this small baby as the son of God. People will call Jesus Savior, Lord. So what does that mean in comparison with Rome, with Caesar Augustus? 
we see this contrast that Luke is trying to paint for us. We know that Luke, we've already read through Jesus's ministry, that he cares about the poor and the powerless. And Luke here is giving us a picture that from the very beginning, we have human empires and what they want out of life. It's power. It's glory. And we have established that God's kingdom looks different. God's kingdom values everyone equally. And so Luke wants to paint that picture that while we think of all of this power dynamic, we think of the way Jesus was looked at as an adult and the way people were very trying to set him up, trying to kill him. It all starts here, right at his birth. And Caesar, Augustus, may not have even known about this birth at all. But we can see this was the moment when God was beginning a greater message. We also see that Luke has used the word betrothed or engaged here, trying to likely focus on the fact that, because Matthew says that Mary and Joseph did get married, but Luke is trying to explain the fact that Mary and Joseph, um, they didn't have, they were not intimate before Jesus was born, so that the prophecy she w- that Jesus was born to a virgin is still remains. We talked last week about Mary's sacrifice, that she would be saying yes to a scenario where her reputation would be forever affected. People were not going to believe her. And so when she said yes to God's plan to be the mother of Jesus, she was saying yes to sacrifice her own identity, who she was, her own reputation, her own standing in society. But we also have to see that Joseph made some sacrifices as well. He would have had a similar scenario. Joseph, I was very encouraged to read in Matthew that Joseph gets a message from Gabriel himself so that he can be assured by God to say, yes, this story is true. Mary is pregnant with God's son. So Joseph has that reassurance internally, but I am sure externally. He walks by. People are going to whisper behind his back. They're going to think he is an idiot for believing Mary. And I think he is making a similar sacrifice in his standing, in his town, because of this decision. Joseph had to say yes too. So here are two parents. They're carrying a lot on this journey to travel to Bethlehem. And maybe you wonder, well, why would Mary want to even take this trip? She's so close to the time of birth. And probably because... She would want to stick with Joseph and have that support. You know, they're the only two that really grasp this task that they have before them. And maybe, maybe she's trying to get out of town. Maybe she needs a break from the people whispering about her. Go to a new place where she's not known. Let's keep reading Luke 2, verses 6 through 7, please. So that's where they were when the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth. To her firstborn, a son, she wrapped him up and put him to rest in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the normal living quarters. We sing a song, silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright. 
I doubt it was very silent. I mean, have you been anywhere near childbirth? I don't think it's all calm. I don't think it's all... It might not even be that bright. (laughs) There is some darkness here because birth is messy and it's painful, but that doesn't mean it was any less holy. This was sacred, but I think sometimes we gloss over just our fact that it's like, it was human. It was human and it was, the reality is, it wasn't easy. There's so many details that are not spoken of in these Nice two little sentences. And I have questions. What were the logistics? How is Mary and Joseph feeling about not being in like the, a normal bedroom, a home? How stressful was this whole arrangement? I like how this Bible translation states there was no room in the normal living quarters. Because, I don't know, did you grow up ever seeing like little kids put on a pageant and there was like an innkeeper, because some translations say no room in the inn. If you look into the context of the actual words and what the living quarters would have been like, some people think that they could have been in a cave, but others think that it really could just have been a piece of the house. So at the time, there were some houses where the upper floor was where people lived, and the lower floor they would use for animals, keeping shelter for them. And so in this situation, Mary and Joseph could have been in a very overcrowded house. Maybe it was Joseph's relatives. Maybe everybody's coming to town for this census and they're just staying at like an ancient Airbnb. Whatever the situation is, they don't have like the nice bedroom set up here. They have to be in a place that's not normally a place where people were going to stay. Just any place possible to sleep. And again, The myth is that we see, you know, usually there's animals at every nativity, right? Little sheep, the things that we see at Crown Conservatory. We don't know if there was actual animals there. I mean, it would be nice if they were like, hey, you can stay in our animal area. It would have been nice if they would have taken the animals outside for them, at least on that night. So I'm hopeful here. I'm hopeful for caring hosts. But back to my logistics question, as I'm thinking, people make... People make like a birth plan these days, right? And if it doesn't go into plan, then it just can get chaotic. But imagine this. Mary is not even in her hometown, so she doesn't know people here. I'm hoping they found a local, um, sorry, a local uh, midwife to help deliver the baby. This is her first time birthing a child. Everything is new and everything is unexpected. And I just feel that Mary knew things weren't going to be exactly as planned, even by taking this trip, knowing she's so close to her due date. She's got to know that things are going to be different. And so I can't imagine the chaos, the stress in her mind to be like, this is not my plan. I hope they let her into the main house, at least on the night of the birth. Like I'm just, there's just so many logistics I'm questioning here. But I would think this also has to be stressful on Joseph. When we read more about Joseph and Matthew, he seems like such a caring guy. You know, he was gonna he was gonna quietly divorce Mary when he first thought that this this unexpected pregnancy came along. He was reassured by God. He took her in. I just I just feel that love that Joseph has. 
And if he is going, because they're registering in Bethlehem because it's his family heritage, he's the one that's going to probably have relatives there. He's probably the one taking care of all the lodging, all of the details. (laughs) How stressed would he feel to be like, I'm sorry, Mary, to just see her discomfort, to know, hey, God, I'm bringing your son in and like, there's animals nearby. Don't have space for them. Like, do you think he felt that guilt? Like, great, I am messing it up already. Supposed to be a provider and look what I'm doing. Joseph, he had to sacrifice a lot by just saying, I'm willing to carry burdens that other people might not have to carry. So all of these things are in my mind. And now when I look at the nativity, I start to notice the sacrifice in the details. Let's keep reading. We're going to meet some new people. Luke 2, verses 8 through 14, please. There were shepherds in the region, out in the open, keeping a night watch around their flock. An angel of the Lord stood in front of them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Don't be afraid, the angel said to them. Look, I've got good news for you, news which will make everybody very happy. Today, a Savior has been born to you, the Messiah, the Lord, in David's town. This will be the sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped up and lying in the feeding trough. Suddenly, with the angel, there was crowd of the heavenly armies, They were praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace upon earth among those in his favor. Angels, they're always beginning the first lines of everything they say. What do they say? Every angel we see. Don't be afraid. Okay, why? Why are we not being afraid? Well, I like this biblical memes that I've seen about. I don't know if you've seen them online. So we've got angels saying, be not afraid. Also, angels, as they are described in the Bible, might look like this. This is why you're afraid. This is why you're told not to be afraid. In Ezekiel and in Revelation, we've got descriptions. These are not the little baby cute cherubs with little wings on their back. They're said to have eyes all over their body and inside. I don't know how that works. They have heads like lions, oxes, eagles. They're also described as having four sides with four faces, feet like cows, shining like bronze. And also there's like a bunch of wings and human hands sometimes around the the wings. I don't even know. So finally, I just see like a whole sky full of these guys. Yeah, don't be afraid, shepherds. Political note here, notice... Who gets the news? It's not the powerful Luke is noting. This is not the emperor himself getting the news. These are shepherds. They are low-skilled labor workers out in a field. They are people who, why shepherds? You know, why shepherds? And I think that there's a few things that come to mind. First of all is that, again, God is choosing the humble. He's choosing the unexpected to receive his news, to be a part of this amazing day. Number two is King David. King David was a shepherd before he became king. 
This is Bethlehem, where David was from. Jesus is in the line of David. So how, how fitting that shepherds are coming to his birth party. And finally, Jesus was called the Lamb of God by his cousin John. We read that. Look, here comes the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Some of those sheep out there that those shepherds are watching, they're going to be taken to the temple. They're going to be used as sacrifices. And so how fitting that the shepherds would come. They would meet a baby who would grow into a man, and he would be the Lamb of God who sacrificed himself for us. Let's keep reading verses 15 through 21 and finish out our time today. So when, the angel, so when the angels had gone away again into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Well then, let's go to Bethlehem and see what it's all about, all this that the Lord has told us. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the feeding trough. When they saw it, they told them what had been said to them about this child. And all the people who heard it were amazed at the things the shepherd said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and mused over them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. After eight days, the time came to circumcise the baby. He was called by the name Jesus, which the angel had given him before he had been conceived in the womb. I like how this version says feeding trough, because again, I don't know, like manger is not a word I grew up with other than church, and so it kind of sounds like fancy and special, but I like this version. It's just like, hey, it's where the animals eat. It's basic. But Luke shows us here that the shepherds are looking for something different, right? That you don't see so many babies laying around in feeding troughs. And so the significance was like, this was a sign. This was the way the angels communicated and said, you're going to figure out which baby we're talking about. He's going to be in a feeding trough. Our traditional nativity myths. First, we don't know if Mary came in on a donkey. Second, we said how we visualize where they were staying. But if if it was overcrowded, if they're, if they're in a house that's already packed to the gills and they're, they're hanging out here, how crowded does it get when shepherds enter the scene? You know, usually on my nativity, I put the shepherds here and they're, they've got plenty of breathing room, but like they're cramming in to see a baby and I don't know how much space there is. I get a little claustrophobic myself on a good day, much less, well, have you ever been on a farm? Or if you take a walk past Crone, there's, you get a whiff of some things. There's a smell. There's a smell. I think if the shepherds are hanging out with sheep, they probably didn't like take any time in between this announcement where they're sitting out in the fields with the sheep and then coming in. So Mary and Joseph, they're sacrificing some, they're sacrificing some smell here. They're sacrificing their comfort as these people cram in to see a baby. But I feel like 
it was a moment, right? We see that Mary treasured these things in her heart. Well, I feel like maybe she treasured it after they left, but still. The shepherds, we don't know that they stayed very long because they were excited, and it says they start to go out and tell other people this news. Again, who knows? People were amazed, so I'm thankful that some people believe them. But everybody's looking. Everybody's looking for signs. They have been searching for years for the Messiah. And do you feel that hope? There's hope here. There's hope that something different can come. That it's not just about Caesar Augustus in Rome, but that there's hope for the Jewish people, for some new kingdom to come to earth. That's why they were spreading this good news. Now, we have talked about all the adults in this scenario fawning over a baby. We've talked about their sacrifice. What about Jesus himself, this little baby? When I ever hear people talking about Jesus' sacrifice, maybe your mind goes to where my mind does. The cross, obviously, ultimate sacrifice. But it begins right here, right at his birth. Because Jesus, we believe, as part of God, would have been eternal. So he was somewhere else before he ever came down to earth. And so he gave up that otherness to come into humanness. Let's think about some pieces of God. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. God is omniscient, all-knowing. God is omnipresent, everywhere at once. So Jesus made the sacrifice to give up all the power and come. All the, all the knowledge. And he's becoming like a little child. And he's giving up all of this presence to be in one place at one time in history. Jesus is planting himself here. And I would love to read for you this quote from Scott Erickson, who has a book called Honest Advent. And he says, what does it say about a God who's willing to be this vulnerable with us? Who's willing to come into the world through the statistical risk of childbearing? Who's willing to be attached by a placenta for nourishment and life to its own creation? Who's willing to wait and grow in a human womb? Who's willing to be fearfully and wonderfully made? just like we are. I see Jesus' sacrifice here as a willingness to trust, to trust in the other parts of the Trinity, but also to trust in a human being to take care of him. I feel like he has belief, belief that we were worth this sacrifice. And in any sacrifice, the ones that you and I have to make, I think it boils down to having trust and belief. When you do something on behalf of another person who is made in God's image, you're trusting that something good will come out of it, even if you never see the result. You are believing that that person has worth and value assigned by God, and that is why you do what you do. When you make any kind of sacrifice in life, in the details, and in the big extravagant moments, you're honoring God, you're honoring his creation, 
You're trusting and believing that it's worth it. And if we are to follow after Jesus, then I believe on this journey, how do we live as the redeemed people of God? Stay willing to sacrifice. Got to be willing. The idea of sacrifice doesn't sound exciting. It sounds uncomfortable, just like we've seen one example today. Even painful. Definitely vulnerable. We're not promised a beautiful result. Our sacrifices don't always have the results that we see. But we have to trust and believe it's for something good. Excuse me. With this mindset. We're all going to be called to sacrifice in a different way. You're not going to be able to compare to someone else. You may not even be able to compare to how you sacrificed last year versus what you might be asked to do this year. But I want us to think about three pieces of sacrifice. In this next month, I would like to challenge all of us to do three things. One, thank. I want you to think of someone in your life this year who has made a sacrifice in some big or small way for you. And before December runs out, I want you to find a way to thank them. A text, phone call, maybe a note. You'll know. Find a way to thank them and honor their sacrifice for you. Someone has sacrificed something for you this year. Number two, let's confess. I mean, to be honest, when you make a sacrifice and you don't get that gratitude, it doesn't feel good, does it? doesn't feel great and that's that's not why you do it but yet it's human to feel that way but if you kind of don't let that out and be honest about that feeling it can build up it can turn into resentment and then you're not wanting to sacrifice anymore or you're wanting to sacrifice in order to show someone something let's just confess and be like okay help me god figure this out move on and know that you have seen the sacrifice and number three let's pray Pray for the openness to sacrifice again. You've done it before. and Maybe you got hurt. But be willing. Be open to looking for God moving. To listen to God's spirit. To know what you need to do. I believe you'll know it. Pray that you have that strength. So no matter what nativity you see this Christmas... No matter what it looks like, no matter how accurate it is, no matter what culture it represents, know that it represents this. It represents sacrifice. And we're to go and do likewise. Will you pray with me? Thank you, God, that the images that may have brought us comfort, may have be our traditions, maybe accurate or not. Thank you for teaching us through them, despite them, around them. Thank you for the sacrifices we can see people making in the past, in history. Thank you for the sacrifices we've all experienced this year from someone who cared enough about us, about who we are, who saw our value. Thank you for believing that we matter. 
Thank you for sacrificing from the moment you were in the womb until your death on the cross. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.